Good morning. Well, it's been a while since I've been up here other than the first service. Um, and for those of you that you were in the first service, you can't answer this question. Does anyone remember my last sermon from a year and seven months ago or so? You do? What was it? <laughs> Thank you. Someone said Jacob. Uh, names are important. Uh, Jacob means deceiver. And I, how many Jacobs are there here today? Doesn't that make you feel good? Yeah. Yeah, it also means something. It means something else, right? There's a story behind that. But God changed, changed Jacob's name to Israel. That means wrestled, struggled with God. So um, this morning we're going to look at another person from the Old Testament with a unique name and a strange meaning. And I'm going to need some, of your, some help from you this morning. If I've got to say his name, so do you. Yeah, maybe I should drink some water. Mephibosheth. Let's try it. Okay, Mephibosheth. One, two, three, Mephibosheth. Let's try one more time. Mephibosheth. That's not easy, right? You want to know what his uncle's name was? Ishbosheth. Yeah. It's no matter. I like Jake better. Do you know his story? How many people know the story of Mephibosheth? Yeah, there's a couple of you that know the story. You're going to find it in 2 Samuel chapter 9. You can probably go there in your Bible if you want. We'll get to it a little bit later. Because before we get to his story, I'd like to explain his situation and the time frame from where he lived. And you've got to understand, at the time of Mephibosheth, David is king. That little shepherd boy that killed the giant Goliath, he's king. But I want to go back a little bit further than that. I want to lead up to David becoming king because David plays an important part in the story. Before David, Saul was the king of Israel. He was the Lord's anointed. And Saul has a son named Jonathan. And uh, there's some Jonathans here as well. And, and uh, Jonathan was next in line to become the king. He was the firstborn of Saul. That's how it works, right? In a, in a kingdom, you know, usually... you know. It gets passed down to the next generation. That's the way it works. But Saul hasn't exactly been a good example to the nation Israel. And uh, he's, he's made some serious mistakes and he disobeyed God. And uh, the penalty for that was that God rejected him as king. And set out to find another one. And a man after his own heart. And that was David. And he had Samuel go and uh, anoint David to be the next king. From another family altogether. What do you think that does to Saul? I want you to think about that. Because that, that was a little shepherd boy named David, the youngest of his family. That's, that's another way it does, not supposed to work, right? It's supposed to go to the oldest, the next in line. So David is working for Saul, you know, in, in the army, because you know, he has killed a giant. And he's also in his house, because he happens to play the harp really well, and we have all his songs here in the book of Psalms. Uh, and Saul, because the, God, because the Lord is no longer with him, is tormented by evil spirits at times. And when this happens, he needs somebody to soothe him. And music does this. So he has David play the harp for him. So he's in his army and is in his house. And this is where David and Jonathan get to know each other. And they become incredibly close. They loved each other so much that they made a special agreement with each other in 1 Samuel 18, verse 3. And it was called a covenant. I'm going to read that verse for you. I'll read, I'll read verse 3 and verse 4. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. 
Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. A covenant was a big deal. Gifts were exchanged, as we see here, and the covenant was usually made in blood. There would, be two, two, there were, there would generally be two parts to it. Now, in this case, David didn't give anything to Jonathan because he probably had nothing. A covenant is a really big deal. You guys have heard of the covenant that God made with Abram, with Abraham? And I want to explain a Middle Eastern covenant to you. I've done this in the past, but just so you get the idea of how serious it is. In a Middle Eastern ceremony, let's say perhaps for a wedding, what they would do is the, the groom and the bride's fathers would get together and they would make a contract, a covenant, to make sure that they would uphold both ends of the marriage. That's, uh, they would make this, uh, this vow to each other. And what they would do is they would make a little path, a little valley. They would kill an animal on each side. Each of them would kill an animal. They would drain the blood in the middle. This sounds really gross. And then they would walk through the blood. All right? And it would get up their feet and up to their, their robes. And it was a symbol saying, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may this happen to me. Their lives were on the line. It was a big deal. A covenant is a really, really big deal. You know, if you take a look at your Bible, you know, it's divided into two halves. There's, we call it the Old Testament, New Testament. We don't even think about it. What's a testament? A testament's a covenant. Oh, thank you. A testament is a covenant. And uh, that's, that's exactly what this is. God has made a promise to us in the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 3, that somebody would come to restore the relationship that we lost because Adam and Eve sinned. And the New Testament is the fulfillment of that through Jesus Christ. So sometimes it's good to think of the Bible as an old covenant and a new covenant. Maybe that'll help you to remember. Covenant, oh yeah, that's a big deal. The Hebrew translated literally says that they would cut a covenant. They wouldn't just make a covenant. That's, you know, to symbolize the blood being shed. You know, we still use similar words like that today. What do we say when someone says, hey, I cut a deal with him? Does it make any sense to tell somebody that you cut a deal with him? What does that mean? Well, if you understand that you're making a contract, you're making an agreement to cut a covenant, yeah, it makes sense. You cut a deal with him. Now, this friendship between Jonathan and David angered King Saul. He wanted his son, Jonathan, to be king after him, not David. And many times he tried to kill David by throwing a spear at him. I counted three times. Tried to pin him to a wall the one time. <laughs> wow, it makes you want to play the harp. Saul recognized that David was a threat. He was a threat to him. And yet his son, Jonathan, loved David all the more. You know, it's also common in those days to make a blood covenant in a different way. They would take a knife and they would cut their arms. They would then sprinkle crushed rock into the wound and then let it heal. What happens? Well, it's not going to heal evenly, is it? You know, I've had many stitches and cuts, but you can't really tell them where, where they are. You probably can't see them, can you? You know, little marks that I've got from a carpal tunnel surgery, well, they try to be discreet. It was a plastic surgeon that did the job. Or the time that I was goofing around with a knife and almost cut my finger off. You know, that one you might be able to see. You know, but I mean, we're discreet about those things, right? Well, now when you cut a covenant that way, you want it to show. It's a reminder. You get up in the morning, you get dressed. Oh, yeah, there it is. There's my promise. What was that promise I made? It's a big deal. 
Do we still... Hey, how many people did this? How many boys did this as a kid? Did you do the same thing with your buddies? We did. We'd go around and the neighborhood kids would come together and the boys and we'd all grab a little jackknife or something, something sterile like that, you know, and uh, cut our fingers and then we would mix them together. Hey, we're blood brothers. I remember doing this. The girls didn't do this. That was gross, you know. It is kind of gross, you know. But that's what we did. As Saul watched this friendship grow between the two of them, his madness, his jealous insanity, whatever you would call it, drove him to seek David's life. And David ended up being a fugitive. He had to run. He had to run for his life. He had to hide in caves. But Jonathan found him. He found him again, hiding somewhere. And they renewed their covenant again in 1 Samuel 23, 18, after Saul had made another attempt on David's life. And they made a promise to look out for each other's families. And a short time later, uh, tragedy strikes. Saul had to go fight the Philistines as the leader of Israel. He had to go fight the Philistines. And he had his sons with him. And they lost the battle. In fact, uh, Israel fled before the Philistines. And it was a really bad loss. In fact, Saul died, and so did his three sons. Three of his sons, including Jonathan. Now David has lost his best friend, and Israel has lost their king. But there's one more a son of Saul. His name is, I mentioned him, Ishboset. Ish, yeah, let's try this again. Ishbosheth. Now he becomes king of all Israel except for the tribe of Judah because Judah wants David as their king. And uh, David is king of Judah for seven and a half years. And the family of Saul fought against David and his kingdom for years. Ishbosheth was eventually murdered by somebody, by two guys within his own camp, and David eventually became king over all of Israel. Okay, so where does Mephibosheth fit into all this? Who is he? Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan, David's best friend. He's the grandson of King Saul. He is a prince, he is royalty. He should, in fact, be the next king of Israel if you follow the line of succession. You know what his name means? Son of reproach. Son of shame. Don't name your kids Mephibosheth. Okay? Let's take a closer look at his life. 2 Samuel 4, verse 4. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old. When the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, his nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave... He fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. So you got that great cover art on your, uh, on your um, bulletin. It shows a man on crutches uh, before King David. And we'll get to that. But that's Mephibosheth. You know, he was in great danger. When King Saul died and uh, three sons died, you know, um, what happens? Well, the next in, he should have been next in line. Well, what happens to successors? They get murdered. You know, I mean, uh, somebody else wants to be king, it's just a kid. You know, you do away with them. So what do you do? You, you, you hide them. You hide them. And there's stories in the Bible of people hiding the king, the future king. And so what happens? So the nurse picks him up, takes off with him, drops him. His legs are broken. And we don't exactly know what happened, but he's lame, he's crippled, he can't walk. And according to our scripture this morning, he ends up in a place called Lodabar. 
Now, Lodabar also has a meaning. If you, if you find out where it's at, it's in the land of Gilead, and uh, it's a desert wasteland. There's nothing there. It means, uh, Lodabar means this, no pasture, no hope, no promise. You know, one pastor has called it a howling wilderness. He's living in the house of a man named Makir, the son of Amiel. In this case, the word for house also means prison. It might as well be. The word Makir means bartered or sold. So let me sum up his life this way. I'll give you a, a summary. He came from, number one, he came from a disgraced family. God was sorry that he, ever had, that he had ever made Saul, Mephibosheth's granddad, king. He came from a doomed family. Any surviving member of a former king was earmarked for execution. Can you imagine how he felt when he found out that Ishbosheth, his uncle, was dead? I'm sure he went into hiding even more. He also came from a destitute family. He was in a wilderness with no hope of ever getting out. He was crippled. Others had to take care of him. He couldn't take care of himself. There was nothing he could do about the situation. What could he do to heal himself? What could he do to make something for himself? Because if he comes out in the open and says, Here I am, I'm Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, what's, king, what's he going to think King David's going to do? Eliminate the threat. Now let's read 2 Samuel chapter 9. In verse 1, I'll start from verse 1. I'm going to add some commentary as we go along. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now David has finally achieved peace in his kingdom. He's fought the Philistines and he's beaten them really badly and they're paying him tribute. Uh, the land is relatively at rest. We are not told really what reason it was that made him think of this covenant. All I can think about is, you know, once I discovered about the possibility that he had a scar on his arm, we don't know for sure if he did or not, that maybe one day getting dressed, he happened to catch it, a reflection of it, saw it, I don't know, and it reminded him, and maybe he asked. In verse 2 it says this, Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Well, where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. I've got a question for you. What do you think was going through Mephibosheth's mind at this time? What do you think is going through his mind? Yeah, yay! He finally realizes, I should be king. Um, probably not. He is probably petrified, scared to death. The one thing that he didn't want to have happen was to be found out that he was alive. He wanted to be in the wasteland, hidden away, to live out his miserable life. He didn't want anybody to know that he was still alive. You know, and I may not have mentioned this, but we'll find out later that Mephibosheth also has a son named Micah. His son, too, would be executed. I'm sure that's running through his mind as well, you know, because I have three young kids as well. It's not a pleasant thought for a parent. In verse 6, When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. What can he do but beg? What's left? What's there left for him to do? David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will sure, surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, 
and you will always eat at my table. Do you think that Mephibosheth was just a, maybe a little bit confused, thinking, is this a trick? Or what's going on? That's what I would be wondering. But take a close look at his response in verse 8. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? You know, this man has been so beaten down in his life that he considers himself absolutely worthless. Look at his name. Son of reproach. Son of shame. You know, I don't want to offend any dog lovers out here, but um, in Bible times, to compare someone to a dog was a terrible insult. A dead dog would have even been worse. And that's what he calls himself. Why would you notice a dead dog like me? I am nothing. He knows that he has nothing to offer King David. What can he offer? Yeah, I'll help you run your kingdom. Uh, I can't walk. I can't work. I can't do anything. You know, if anything, he could be seen as a threat to King David because of his heritage. In verse 9, it says this, Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops, so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord, the king, commands his servants to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's households were, all, were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. This is an amazing story. I, I, it's, it's, it, just, it blows me away every time I read it. You know, what friendship and love? What commitment to following through on a promise? But this is more than just Mephibosheth's story. Okay? It is every human being's story that has ever lived. You know, I have called this sermon uh, Mephibosheth and me for a reason. We have a lot in common with him. David's grace to him is a wonderful picture of God's grace to us. We are a Mephibosheth. We too are hiding. We're poor, we're weak, lame, fearful before our king, before our king comes to us. We are separated from our king because of our wicked ancestors. Take a look at Adam and Eve. They had perfection and they sinned. We are separated from our king because of our own actions, our own sins. And we know what they are. We have separated ourselves from the king because we didn't know. We didn't know him or his love for us. We didn't know. Our king was looking for us before we were looking for him. The king's kindness is extended to us for the sake of another. Because of what Jesus did for us. The king's kindness is based on a covenant, that promise that God made back in Genesis 3. He kept his end of the deal. And we have to receive this gift, this kindness and humility. There's nothing we've done to earn it. The king has returned to us what is lost, what we lost in hiding from him. You know, when I think about that, I think of uh, Adam and Eve sinning for the first time. And they, they, they realize, oh, oh my goodness, we're naked. We didn't know we were naked. So they make fig leaf clothes and they try to hide from God as God comes in the cool of the day. And they're hiding from him. 
That's what our sin does. It makes us hide from perfection. And the king returns to us more than what we lost in hiding from him. And, you know, we have the, provi- we have the privilege of provision at the king's table. There's a wonderful picture in, in the book of Revelation of what it's going to be like. You know, uh, having this giant banquet that he's preparing a place for us. Or have this giant feast where all the saints come together. His bride coming together. We are received as sons at the king's table with access to the king and fellowship with him. We have fellowship with him again. If you've accepted his free gift. That free gift doesn't make sense to us, does it? It's hard for us to understand. And if you read the book of Revelation, you'll also see that we receive servants from the king. Check it out. The king's honor does not immediately take away all of our weaknesses and doesn't take away all of our lameness, and we know this. We still have problems. But it gives us favor and standing that overcomes its sting and changes the way we think about ourselves. I am not the same person I was before I was a Christian. I am not the same. I remember my life before. I remember that wilderness life. It was terrible. I distinctly remember quitting my job because I had another job lined up and I said, I'm going to change my life because I am miserable. And I knew that just going to another job wouldn't fix it. And I had to sit back and reflect and say, when was the last time I was happy? Those are tough things to think about, you know, because uh, I was miserable. And it came down to the fact that the last time I was happy is when I, when I came to church and I was following God. And I had to recommit my life to Christ. Do you realize this morning that we are nothing without what Jesus Christ has done for us? We are nothing. And we will always be in Lodabar if that's the case. We too come from a disgraced and fallen family. Romans 3.10 says, There is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. These verses are familiar to us. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. And we too also come from a doomed family. Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. There is a death sentence on the entire human family. That's our situation. We too also come from a destitute family. We are in a position of having no pasture. Lodabar. We are sold under our sins. We are lost and we need a redeemer to deliver us from our slavery. We are born in sin and are doomed to hell. It's not a popular word these days. And there is nothing at all that we can do about it. You see, a lost sinner cannot save himself. He cannot turn over a new leaf and be better and be accepted into heaven. He cannot purchase salvation that can't be done. There's nothing that we can do to earn it. The lost sinner, every human being that's ever lived, is absolutely destitute before our Lord, before the Lord God. Helpless, hopeless, and completely without power, just like Mephibosheth. He was royalty. We were royalty. Adam and Eve were royalty. And we blew it. You know, the human condition is summed up quite plainly in Ephesians 2, verse 12. 
Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. We can only come to him because he came to us first. He sought us first. He was looking for us. And you know what? He's calling all of us this morning. He calls us all. Seven billion people in this world, he's calling us. So I have a couple simple questions for you. Where are you? Are you in Lodabar? Or are you eating at the king's table? Are you in a wasteland hiding from the one who came to save you? And what are you going to do when the king comes calling for you? Will you humbly bow before him, uh, like Mephibosheth did, and tell him that you know that you are unworthy but are still willing to serve him? You know, just as David spared Mephibosheth, so too you can be spared in eternity in hell. All we have to do is accept Jesus' free offer of salvation. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world, and we know this first, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And also in Revelation 3, verse 20, where Jesus is speaking to the churches, and I believe it's to Laodicea, where he says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, and he with me. You know, the point is this. We deserve hell. We do. God's absolute standard, we could never attain. Just couldn't reach it. Just couldn't, couldn't happen. But we don't have to go there. We don't have to end up in hell. The king is calling all of us out of the wilderness. And I'm going to encourage you guys to answer his call today. You know, Mephibosheth has a son named Mika. That's where we get the name Mikael or Michael or Mike from. And this name means something special. It means, who is like God? And I find it interesting that it's Mephibosheth's son that's named this. Who is like our God? There's nothing like our God out there. There's no one like him. You know, he's calling us. And I'm going to encourage you. Most of us are Christians. I know that. Some of us may not be. And maybe as a Christian, you've placed yourself back into Lodabar yourself in that wilderness wasteland. We have lots of people here that would love to talk to you. If you're, if you're serious about making a commitment to Christ, taking yourself out of the wasteland, He is calling us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for everyone here. I'm so grateful that your grace is extended to each and every one of us. It doesn't matter what our station in life, it doesn't matter what we've done. You know, I've blown it so many times, and I know I will continue to do so, but you're here for me. You love me unconditionally. You've, you've adopted me as a son. I'm so grateful. And Lord, I know that there are others out here that are hurting and suffering, and only you can help them, and you're calling them. And you want to bring them, but they have to accept. Lord, I pray that they would overcome their fear and take that step in faith and come to you. Amen.